following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this morning, we are back in Isaiah. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open that. If you've got it on your device, you can open that up. We're in Isaiah chapter 2 this morning. Uh, And we're going to cover more or less the whole chapter. But uh, Renee is going to come and read just some selected verses from the chapter because it's quite a long passage. So we'll just uh, read out a few verses and then dive into it. Renee, where are you? There you are. Okay, thank you. Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And down to verse 10. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Thanks, Renee. Great. All right, well, one of the most uh, famous speeches ever must be Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, all right? This iconic speech, everyone's heard of it. I've got a little snippet of it, just a little taster, just to set the scene here. So watch this. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. Mm-hmm. So... In 1963, he gave that speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and uh, that's a time, obviously, in the U.S., very racially segregated time. 
uh, huge racial division in the United States, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, was a huge champion of the civil rights movement. And so he's painting this picture throughout that speech, and it's become iconic because he keeps coming back to that phrase, I have a dream, I have a dream. He's painting this picture of a future that he's hoping for in the United States of America where there will be equality between blacks and whites. And uh, as he says, where his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And so he just paints this picture over and over again. And of course, the point of that speech is not just to, to create this, this idealized picture of the future, it's to motivate people in the present. That was his whole point. He's, he's not just painting this kind of pie in the sky picture of this is what I'm hoping is gonna happen. He's doing that to galvanize people in the present so that their hearts would be stirred and their consciences changed, and they would move towards greater civil rights in the US. And so the, the future picture is all about present action. That's how they're connected. And in a way, that's a little bit similar to what's going on in Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, you could think about this chapter like this is Isaiah's I have a dream speech. You know, this, like he doesn't use those words, but in a similar way, that's what he's doing. He's casting his field of vision, or, or God is giving him this vision, which goes all the way to that fourth mountain. You remember we talked about those four mountains in the beginning? And in, in last week's passage, it was very much on the immediate circumstances in front of him and the people. But now Isaiah casts his field of vision all the way to that fourth mountain, that final day, that future day when God brings the present age to a close and ushers in the age to come, when Jesus returns and brings about this final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth, that's now what Isaiah is picturing. And he uses all these images and God gives him all these images and metaphors to describe what kind of world that's gonna be. But unlike Martin Luther King, this is not just some kind of wish for the future. This is not just, you know, I hope, I have a dream. This is God saying, this is exactly what I'm gonna do. I will bring this day about. It's not a hope. This is a certainty. God is saying this future will one day be the present. What you read in this chapter will one day come about on earth as it is in heaven. This is what's going to happen. Uh, but just like Martin Luther King Jr., the whole point of this vision is not just this kind of pie in the sky when we die stuff. The whole point is that it would motivate us in the present. The whole point is that we would look at our lives in the present and it would do something to us. And it would do something in us. That's what he was hoping for the people of Judah, that this would create conviction and it would bring challenge and it would bring change in their lives in the present. And they would align themselves to that day and live towards what God is going to bring about. So we're going to have a little walkthrough of this vision. And as you probably pick up in those verses that Renee read, it's a real vision of two halves. It's two very different parts to this. There's, uh, there's, there's hope. And that's the first five verses. It's full of hope, this picture. But then it's also full of judgment. That's the second half or the second two-thirds, really. There's incredible hope, but there's also some very sobering message of judgment that goes along with this day. And we need to hear both. Both are important. You remember we talked about those two rivers that flow through Isaiah, judgment and hope. They're both right here in Isaiah 2. So we've got to hear both of those messages, judgment and hope. So let's start with the good because that's where Isaiah starts, the hope. He describes in these first five verses the beauty and the, the bounty of this new heavens and new earth that God's going to bring about. There's a lot that you could look at in here and you might want to explore a bit of this in your life group. But let me just pick up on one verse in here, uh, which has a beautiful image in it. In verse four, he says, He, that's God, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. 
They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's a stunning image, isn't it? A beautiful picture of peace. So Isaiah's looking around, and he sees his own day marked by a lot of violence. He sees violent nations around him bent on conquest and expansion at the expense of other people. He sees a lot of bloodshed in his own nation of Judah. He sees civil war between Judah and Israel. He sees all his violence. And yet God allows him to see this day that's coming when all of that is going to fade away. When all this violence, all of this hostility, all of this enmity between communities and people and nations, all of that is just going to be dissolved and there will only be peace. There will only be the shalom of God that covers the whole earth. And that's a hard thing for us to picture, isn't it? That's hard for us to get our head around because we live in a day, just like Isaiah's day, that is marked by a lot of violence and warfare and bloodshed. And it's hard for us to imagine a world that could ever be any different to what it is now. You know, we look around us, we see so much. I mean, we may not experience violence on a day-to-day basis, unless you're a police officer or some other type profession. You know, most of us are insulated from physical violence, but we know we live in a blood-saturated world. We know we live in a violent world. And whether it's, whether it's civil war in Syria or South Sudan, whether it's gang violence in Tauranga, we live in this kind of world where there is violence, where there is domestic abuse, where there is all kinds of other abuse, where there is conflict and hostility and people's lives being needlessly taken. That's our world. That's our reality. And we're so entrenched in it, it's difficult to picture anything else. It's difficult to imagine there could be any other kind of world. And God, God says, lift up your eyes. Just try. You've got to try at least to picture this reality because God says one day it's going to be here. It's not just some romantic notion. One day this will be the reality that all of that violence, all of those situations that create hundreds of thousands of refugees around the world, all of these circumstances, that will all be dissolved. And there will only be the beautiful shalom and peace of God. That is the world that we have to look forward to. And the way Isaiah describes this is he, he takes these images of some weapons in his own day. He talks about swords. He talks about spears. And he says they'll, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So these are basic weapons of warfare in the first century, ancient times, spears, swords. And he says these, these weapons, it's interesting you notice what he said. It's not that they're just going to throw away their swords. What's going to happen to the swords? They get repurposed. Do you see that? You see it in there, verse 4? So it's, he doesn't say they will destroy their swords, they will destroy their spears. He says, no, no, they're going to turn their swords into plowshares. They're going to turn their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, these weapons of warfare and hostility and violence, they will be repurposed into things that are productive, into things that are meaningful, into things that cultivate peace, into things that cultivate community, into things that bring about well-being and flourishing for those people who inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, all those who belong to Jesus. These weapons of warfare become weapons of peace and meaningful work. I mean, that's what a plowshare is, right? A plowshare is actually a thing you work with. Does that suggest to you there might even be work in the new heavens and the new earth, could that possibly be? Could it still be that you're going to be plowing the land in the new heaven and the new earth? Yes, there will be work, but it's not going to be drudgery. 
It's not going to be meaningless work. It's not going to be work that you hate with a terrible boss. It's going to be work that's fulfilling and satisfying and adventurous and interesting. And you're going to want to get up in the morning and go to work. That's how incredible it's going to be. Hard to imagine now, but that is the new heavens and the new earth. You've got to try and get a bit of biblical imagination around this and picture what, what kind of world could that possibly be? One writer has a bit of fun with this. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. And he, he takes this image of the, the swords being turned into plowshares, spears to pruning hooks, and he uses this around some modern imagery uh, to help us picture what this would be like. He says, swords will have to be turned back into pruning shears, switchblades into paring knives, and spears into garden hoes. High-powered dope-running speedboats will have to be reclaimed for teaching poor kids to water ski. In the new heavens and earth, intercontinental ballistic missile silos will be turned into training tanks for scuba divers. That is awesome. That, if Isaiah was speaking today, that's what he would say. That's what he would be writing. He's taking this instrument of warfare, an instrument of international violence, and he's saying it's going to be totally converted into something meaningful and fun and adventurous. You've actually got to try and be imaginative with this. You should do this in your life groups. Picture, what is this going to mean? Tanks turned into playgrounds. Pistols turned into water guns. You know, that's the kind of world we're talking about. All these instruments of warfare laid down and repurposed and becoming tools of human flourishing in the world. And God says, not a pipe dream. One day that future will be the present. You're going to be living in that world. So what this should do is pull our hearts forward, yeah? The whole purpose of this is that we should be hungry for that world and we should be saying, come Lord Jesus, come and take all the brokenness in this world and all the violence and hostility and even the conflict that we have in our relationships where things get weird and awkward and tense. Come and just take, take all that away, Jesus, and come and make this world new like you want it to be. It should pull our hearts forward toward that day and it should lead us to work towards that day by being peacemakers wherever we can, by pursuing peace, by being nonviolent people, by pursuing reconciliation and justice and forgiveness and all of these things because we want to orientate our lives toward that day. We should be pulled towards this vision of peace that Isaiah gives us. So that's the hope side. That's the good side. That's the positive side of this vision. We've got to soak that up, okay, because it kind of prepares us for what's coming next and that's not so pleasant. Because what Isaiah then does is make a massive gear shift. And in the second part of this passage, he gets into some pretty heavy stuff. Now, it all kind of hangs around as verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So Isaiah is looking around him and he's seeing a huge amount of human pride and arrogance in his world. He sees leaders of nations with just unfettered power to do as they please and using that power in damaging ways. He sees a truckload of human pride, just people living as if they're okay with God, but that means they can do whatever they want, just pride and arrogance and this kind of living as if God doesn't exist mentality. And he says, you know, the day is coming when there's going to be a huge reversal of all this. And the way things are now and the way things seem, everything is just going to be turned on its head. And again, we've got to try and picture this because we live in a world that's in some ways very different to Isaiah's world in some ways very similar to Isaiah's world. We look around us today and it's not hard to find examples of human pride and arrogance today. Is that right? I mean, these words could have been written yesterday. All human pride and arrogance will be brought low. 
says Isaiah. You know, we live in a, in a world, we've got world leaders with just incredible power over, over nations, over the lives of millions. World leaders obsessed with power, intoxicated with power. We've got people that are multi-billionaires living lives of just opulence and luxury. It's hard to even imagine how the top 1% live. You've got uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, just this last week bought a mansion in California, $255 million dollars. Just like that. Now, I don't know Jeff Bezos. He might be a wonderful guy, but this is the world we live in. You have something like that happen in the same week that you've got 100,000 refugees created in Idebo in Syria. So this is the situation that we're in. And God looks at this and says, you know, one day there is going to be a great reversal of all this. One day I'm going to put right everything that is wrong with this world. You've got people that just prop themselves up and live for themselves. You've got social media influencers. I just learned about this recently. I'm a bit slow to the party, but you've got these social media influencers now, right? So people who have massive Instagram followings or massive Twitter followings, whatever it is, and because they can influence so many millions of people, businesses will pay them big money to get their products in their hands so that they will blog about the product or they'll promote the product somehow. And then they can turn the purchasing decisions of millions of people that they, that they influence You've got people that just have that kind of sway over who knows how many people. And sometimes, sadly, some of the worst examples of human pride and arrogance come from Christians. Sad as it is to say, or so-called Christians can be some of the worst perpetrators of pride and arrogance. I don't know whether you heard about Kanye West and the church he founded last year. This, uh, initially, the church was invitation only because you've got to be an A-list celebrity to get into Kanye's church. I think, I think, to be fair, he has done some more public events since then. But, um, you know, this church of stardom, and he, I know he's put out some good music and he has some good things to say, but a lot of it seemingly is a self-promoting effort to prop up his own brand. He did an interview back in 2013 where he said this, I'm going down as a legend, whether or not you like me. I am the new Jim Morrison. I am the new Kurt Cobain. The Bible had 20, 30, 40, 50 characters in it. You don't think that I would be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? Well, maybe you would, Kanye. But the Bible had all sorts of characters in it, including some that weren't that savory and met some terrible ends. You know, so you've got this kind of thing going on. And I know this is not everyone, and, and, and he may have a good heart, and he may have genuine faith, I don't know. But we, we live in a world that is marked by so much arrogance, so much pride. This is just where we are in this cultural moment. And Isaiah says, you know, there's a day coming when all this is going to end. There's a day coming when these, these people in the present who have unbelievable power are going to find their power totally stripped of them and find themselves totally and utterly powerless before the Lord. It's going to be a day when people in this world who have eye-watering wealth and just seem to have untold amounts of money and just can buy crazy stuff just off the interest that they make are going to find all their wealth is just taken from them. And they find themselves bankrupt. They find themselves totally poverty-stricken before the great and terrible day of the Lord. There's going to be people in this world who have, in the present, massive influence 
millions of people following them, millions of people buying whatever they endorse. And those people are going to find in this day, all their influence is gone. That they have absolutely zero influence because the only one of influence is the holy God of Israel. We're going to find people who have climbed all sorts of great ladders and achieved incredible things and their star has risen massively and they've got all the accolades and all the trophies and all the certificates on their wall and they're going to find in that day all their walls are empty and their trophy cabinets are bare and they are debased before the great Lord Almighty. And it's not because of what they've achieved. It's not simply because they have money. It's because we allow the sin of pride and arrogance into our lives and we start playing God living as if we are God. And God says, in that day, these people, they will be brought down. They will be brought so low. And the only one who is going to be lifted up in that day is the Lord Almighty. Because what tends to happen by propping ourselves up in the present is we shove God down. That's the inevitable result. And we just reduce him to our level and what's comfortable for us. And we remake him in our image. But God says, no, one day, the only one who's going to be high and exalted, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And we're going to see him. We're going to see him high and lifted up. We'll see him in all of his splendor. We'll see him in all of his glory in a way we can never see him now. We're going to see the majesty of the Lord of armies, the Holy One of Israel. We'll, we'll see him. But the fear is that that day is not going to be a day of rejoicing for some people. I, and I, to be honest, I, what I fear is that's, that day is not even going to be a day of rejoicing for a lot of Christians. Because the Bible says they will look upon the one they have pierced and they will mourn. And we're going to see God. And in one sense, we will rejoice because this is it. And Jesus is here. And in another sense, I think we're going to look at God lifted up and we're going to look back at our lives and we're just going to say, what on earth was that about? What was I wasting my time doing? What was I sinking my time and money and effort into? I've totally missed the point. And all this time in life, we're building these sandcastles, you know, castles in the sand. And we've built some pretty good sandcastles, some of us. We've got these amazing things, these amazing lives. We've been propping all this stuff up and we've been building these castles in the sand, but the whole time we never saw the tide coming in. And then we're going to get to that day and realize, man, everything we've just been building our lives upon is just washed away. It's just nothing. And yeah, I had a faith. And yeah, I, I, you know, I, I prayed that sinner's prayer and I went to church. I did these things. But really, I lived my life in a way. I was just building castles in the sand and none of that stuff matters. And I think there will be a part of it for many of us on that day. We will mourn and we will grieve for the wasted opportunities that we squandered in the present life. Because instead of building our lives on the rock, we built them on the sand. We wasted it. And so the good news is, that the reason Isaiah gives us this vision is because this day is not here yet. I mean, in one sense, we want that day to come quickly. We, we want to say, come Lord Jesus. We want Christ to come. I want him to come now. In another sense, it's probably good that it's not here yet because we've got time. We've got time to make some changes. And this is why Isaiah puts it in front of these people and says, okay, this is what's coming. This day, one day, this is going to be here. One day, this is going to be real. One day, you're going to look back at this passage in Isaiah 2 and go, oh, that, that wasn't just a sermon I heard in church one day. Oh, that wasn't just a passage in the Bible. That was what God's really planning to do. And now it's here and now it's too late. That's the reason Isaiah is saying it. Because now, as we sit here this morning, it's not too late. 
But what it requires of each of us is to come honestly before God. And this is not just, this is not just for the super rich and world leaders and these people. I know it's easy to point the finger at them as the, as the examples of human pride and arrogance. But the reality is that that same virus of sin runs through every one of our hearts. Is that right? That same virus of human pride and arrogance runs through every single one of our hearts. Doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter how much or little privilege you have, we are all infected with that same virus. Every time we just live as if God didn't exist, as if we are the master of our own fate, captain of our own soul, we're demonstrating the same human pride and arrogance that Isaiah's putting his finger on here. And so he said, what we've got to do is in the first instance, come back to God and repent. That's what we're called to do, to come back and to say, God, I'm sorry that I've been building my life like a castle in the sand. Just been building this, this empire for myself. I've just been focused on all these earthly, worldly things and I've just allowed the culture to squeeze me into its mold and all the values of the world, all the values of all these people around me, that's all rubbed off on me and now it's defined who I am and God, I'm sorry for that and I wanna come back and repent of that and all I want in my life is for you to be exalted. All I want is for my life to be a foretaste of that day so the Lord alone is exalted. That's how it's gonna be in that day. Let it be so in my life now. That's our prayer. That should be our prayer to say, God, I just want you to be the one who's lifted up. I want you to be the one who's high and exalted in my life. I wanna build everything on the rock of who you are, not just lip service, not just religious ritual, but the, the fabric of my life built upon the rock that is Jesus. And God is gracious. When we pray that and when we come to him with that, we find exactly what he said in the previous chapter to be true. He says, even though your sins are scarlet, you'll be white as snow. Even though your sins are as red as crimson, come and I'll make you as washed clean like wool. God is infinitely gracious and he always welcomes us back. He doesn't stand there to judge you. He doesn't stand there to condemn you and wag his finger at you and tell you how bad you are. He always welcomes you back. He always welcomes you home, but he wants you to come home. He wants you to stop running after all these worldly pleasures and come home and seek first his kingdom. And then as someone who's grounded in his grace, who's grounded in our identity in Jesus, to then have a good hard look at our life and say, God, what am I really living for? Am I really living in view of that day? Is that there in front of me? Like a white hot vision that influences real practical decisions I make in life? Or is it just another sermon I heard on Sunday? So God says, I want you to live towards that future. I want you to live towards that vision. Now, what does that mean? Isaiah tells us. He makes it more practical and puts his finger on a few things here that can help us, that can start to translate this into real life. One of them is in verse seven. Have a look at this. He says, their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. You could probably change a few words in that verse and you'd be talking about 21st century New Zealand, wouldn't you? Their land is full of money. There is no end to their treasures. Most of us are able to live reasonably comfortable lives with what we earn. And we, I know we feel poor and we feel like we never have enough, but relative, relatively speaking, relative to our billion hungry neighbors in the world, we're doing all right. So our land is full of money. We've got, we've got our chariots too, except ours have four wheels, not the, not the standard two. 
And our land is full of idols as well. These things our hands have made, these things we, we, we purchase for ourselves, could be the house, could be the batch, could be the boat, could be the jet ski, could be the guitar, could be the whatever. All these things. Find good in themselves, but so easily they grab our hearts and they pull us away from God. Isaiah says this is, this is the problem. This is when you start building your life on something other than God. This is where you've got to address it. The problem is that our world has bought into this story of consumerism. And that story that is our dominant cultural story now, sadly, has colonized Christians. It's colonized the minds and hearts of Christians. So now that's our story. Now we're consumer Christians and we don't know any other way to live. Our identity is in what we wear and what we drive and what kind of house we own and where we eat and what kind of holidays we take and what schools our kids go to. That becomes our identity now in a consumer culture. And it may not be, I think the Christian version of this is it's not necessarily a really ostentatious kind of consumerism. Sometimes we just tone it down a little bit because we're Christians. It's just a little bit more refined and a little bit more subtle. But it's just as easy for these things to grab our hearts, to become the driving focus of our lives. And of course, to sustain all that, you've got to have more and more money to prop up that lifestyle. So we're driven by chasing the dollar. And this just becomes our obsession. This becomes our way of life. And God is saying to us, don't store up treasures on earth. It's what Jesus said, right? Don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Where your, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. God says, you show me your bank statement for the last month. I'll show you where your heart is very quickly. God says, you show me your calendar from the last month. I'll show you very quickly where your heart is. You show me your thought life from the last month. Show me the things that are taking up your mental and emotional energy. I'll tell you where your heart is. I won't tell you where your heart is from the songs you sing on Sunday morning. That could mean anything. But I'll tell you where your heart is from your bank statement, your checkbook, your, your, your calendar, your thought life, the things that keep you up at night worrying you. That's the revelation of where your heart is. And God says, don't let money get a grip in that deepest level of your being. Don't let these material things start to define your life. Don't let lifestyle be the driving goal, but store up treasures in heaven. Turn your life towards the King of Kings. Become generous with your money. It's one way of moving in the opposite direction. Become a generous person. Sow into the lives of others. Sow into mission so we can get the gospel to places it needs to go. Sow into the needs, desperate needs of people around you. Learn to have enough. Learn to say no to constantly upgrading, 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 next thing, next, next thing, next thing. Learn to say, I've got enough, I don't need any more. I'm content, I'm grateful, I'm thankful. Learn the art of simplicity. These are the things that start to take our focus off money and material possessions and turn our hearts back to God and back to this picture of the future. And then finally, as I say in verse 22, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? And again, so challenging, I think, in our contemporary world because what we have in Western culture is a celebrity culture. We're absolutely intoxicated with celebrities. Yeah? We just have to know every detail of those lives that we follow on Instagram or whatever it is. And the tragedy is it's just amazing the way the church continues to mimic the world. Like we just insist on doing this all the time. Happens with consumerism. Now it happens with celebrity culture. So now we have our Christian celebrity culture. Got our own version of it now. 
You know, it's the, it's the people that have the huge mega churches. It's the ones that speak at the huge conferences. It's the people that have written tons of books. It's the people that have these worldwide media ministries. And we place them on pedestals far above where they really should be. And it's not, I mean, they, many of these, these Christian speakers, teachers, preachers, they've got good things to say and they're teaching from Scripture and they should be heard and they should be listened to. The problem is, it's not just that what we like, it's not just that we like to hear them teach. It's not that we just like what they've got to say about Jesus. We treat them like they are Jesus. We treat them like they can do no wrong, like they can walk on water. And these are just broken people. These are just sinful people, just like the rest of us. So stop trusting in human opinions. Don't worry about, well, this person says this. and Well, no, 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 because they say, don't worry about it. Come back to the word of God. Let this be your guide. Let this be your anchor. I, I encountered someone so refreshingly different from all this over summer. Uh, we were down at the Keswick camp in Rotorua, and I was speaking there, and the other guy that was speaking there was a guy called Charles Price. And some of you may have heard of Charles Price. He's, um, he's had a huge ministry over the years. British guy now in Canada. Uh, and he's had a, a massive ministry, a huge following. He's written many books. He's had a worldwide media ministry. And uh, many people have followed his teaching for decades and decades and decades. But to meet him, he is just the most humble, gracious man that you could hope to meet. You know, he's happy to come and speak to a camp in Rotorua of a few hundred people when he could be speaking to a few thousand. And he's happy to spend 40 hours traveling to get here so he can get the cheapest plane ticket. And he takes an interest in our kids. You know, he's not detached and removed from everybody else. He's just there. He's just humble and he just loves teaching the word of God. Now, of course, people, if you still wanted to idolize Charles Price, you could if you still wanted to be part of that fan club, but there's nothing that he's doing that's promoting that. It's nothing coming from him. That's prom All he wants to do is point people to Jesus. All he wants to do is get the spotlight off him, in a sense, and point it towards God. That's humility. That's lifting the Lord up, letting him be exalted, and doing all we can not to allow ourselves, our pride, our ego, or the egos of other people, by the way we pander them, to be what gets lifted up and exalted. So don't trust in humans. Don't, it's, it's, I'm not saying like don't, don't trust your friend or don't trust the person next to you. I'm saying don't put human people on such a pedestal that we think they are infallible and we lift them up and without even realizing it, we start reducing God and his authority. There's a warning there for us, I think. This Christian celebrity culture, it's gotten toxic. So this vision that Isaiah gives us, I know that it's pretty sobering stuff and I know that this is pretty heavy stuff, but... The reason that he puts it in front of us is because God's saying this day will soon be here. And when God's exalted in that day, when it finally arrives and it's coming, and when it finally gets here, we don't want to be those that look into the face of Christ and mourn. That's why I say this this morning. I hope you can hear my heart. Is, is, is I don't want you to get to that day and mourn and grieve because you realize looking back at your life, it was all just castles in the sand. I want you to get to that day and be able to look into the eyes of your Savior and see that as the fulfillment of everything your life was about. And yes, of course, you'll have regrets and you'll know you were a deeply sinful, broken person. You're only saved by the grace of God. Of course, nothing changes that. 
But we want to be able to look into the eyes of Christ and say, I built my life on the rock. And I did what I could imperfectly in a broken way to store up not treasures on earth and put my trust in people, but treasures in heaven. I lived towards that day as my true north. So now that day's here. It's not a big surprise. And it's not something that totally comes out of the blue for me because I've already been aligning my life with that day. That's why Isaiah saw it. That's why God gave him the vision. That's why I'm telling you this this morning. I hope that you can keep that day in mind. I hope you can keep these images in mind. Even in the nitty-gritty things of life, you're making little decisions, you're making little purchasing decisions, little relational decisions, decisions about where you're investing your time and your life and your energy and all those things. I pray this vision would sit there for you the day of the Lord and it would guide you and it would lead you so that you center your life around Christ. It is a day of great rejoicing. Amen? Let's pray. So God, I know that these are heavy words and I feel that this morning. I feel the heaviness of this. I feel the weightiness of this, Lord. And I just trust that you are taking my words this morning and and pressing them onto the hearts of your people in the way that you want to do that, Lord. Not the way I'm saying it, but the way that you want to bring all this across, Lord. I pray that it would be something that you speak to your people with grace and with kindness and with love. But Lord, let us get it. Let us get the seriousness of it. Let us feel the weight of it. Let us feel the weight that you want to feel, that great day of the Lord that you have in store. Lord, I pray that we would take this vision in our hearts, this vision you gave to your servant Isaiah, and it would be something of a compass for us. It would be something of a true north for us, that it would guide us. And Lord, would you prompt us by your Holy Spirit in those moments where this matters, in those moments where something's going on in our heart or in our life and you, and you just nudge us and say, this is, this is what I was talking about. It's this moment now. It's that decision now. It's that attitude now. That's what this is about. So Holy Spirit, come and just fill our lives afresh. Make this real in the day-to-day. Make this real in the very ordinary stuff of life. But help us to set you before us, to fix our eyes on Jesus and to run the race that you have laid out for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.